Chapter Twenty of the Enchanted Barn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Enchanted Barn by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Twenty. The cement floor had been down a week and was as hard as a rock when one day two or three wagon loads of things arrived with a note from Graham to Mrs. Hollister to say that he would be glad if these might be stored in one corner of the basement floor where they would be out of her way and not take up too much room. Harley and George went down to look them over that evening. He said something about some things being taken from the office building, said Harley, kicking a pile of iron pipes with his toe. These don't look like any old things that have been used, said George thoughtfully. They look perfectly new. Then he studied them a few minutes more, from another angle, and shut his lips judiciously. He belonged to the boy species that has learned to shut up and saw wood, whatever that expression may mean. If anything wants to come out of that pile of iron in the future, he did not mean to break confidence with anybody's secrets. He walked away whistling and said nothing further about them. The next day Mrs. Graham came down upon the Hollisters in her limousine and an exquisite toilet of organdy and ribbons. She was attended by Elizabeth, wild with delight over getting home again. She begged Mrs. Hollister very charmingly and sincerely to take care of Elizabeth for three or four weeks while she and her husband were away, and to take her entire family down to the shore and occupy their cottage, which had been closed all summer and needed opening and airing. She said that nothing would please Elizabeth so much as to have them all her guests during September. The maids were there with nothing to do but look after them, and would just love to serve them. It really would be a great favor to her if she could know that Elizabeth was getting a little salt air under such favorable conditions. She was so genuine in her request, and suggested so earnestly that Shirley and George needed the change during their vacation, and could just as well come down every night and go up every morning for a week or two more after the vacations were over, that Mrs. Hollister actually promised to consider it and talk it over with Shirley when she came home. Elizabeth and Carol nearly went into spasms of joy over the thought of all they could do down at the shore together. When Shirley came home, she found the whole family quite upset discussing the matter. Carol had brought out all the family wardrobe and was showing how she could wash this and dye that and turn the skirt upside down and put a piece from the old waist in there to make the lower part flare, and Harley was telling how he could get the man next door to look after the hens and pigeons, and there was nothing needing much attention in the garden now, for the corn was about over, except the last picking, which wasn't ripe yet. Mrs. Hollister was saying that they ought really to stay at home and look up another place to live during the winter, and Carol was pleading that another place would be easier found when the weather was cooler anyway, and that Shirley was just awfully tired and needed a change. Supper was flung onto the table that night, any way it happened, for they were all too excited to know what they were about. Carol got butter twice and forgot to cut the bread, and Harley poured milk into the already filled water pitcher. They were even too excited to eat. Graham arrived with Elizabeth early in the evening to add his pleading to his mother's, and before he left he had about succeeded in getting Mrs. Hollister's promise that she would go. Shirley's vacation began the 1st of September, and George had asked for his at the same time so that they could enjoy it together. Each had two weeks. Graham said that the cost of going back and forth to the city for the two would be very little. By the next morning they had begun to say what they would take along, and to plan what they would do with the dog. It was very exciting. There was only a week to get ready, and Carol wanted to make bathing suits for everyone. Graham came again that night with more suggestions. There were plenty of bathing suits down at the cottage, of all sizes and kinds. No need to make bathing suits. The dog, of course, was to go along. 
He needed the change as much as anybody, and they needed him there. That breed of dog was a great swimmer. He would take care of the children when they went in bathing. How would Mrs. Hollister like to have one of the old Graham servants come over to sleep at the barn and look after things while they were gone? The man had really nothing to do at home while everybody was away, as the whole corps of servants would be there, and this one would enjoy coming out to the country. He had a brother living on a place about a mile away. As for the trip down there, Graham would love to take them all in the big touring car with Elizabeth. He had been intending to take her down that way, and there was no reason in the world why they should not all go along. They would start Saturday afternoon, as soon as Shirley and George were free, and be down before bedtime. It would be cool and delightful journeying at that hour, and a great deal pleasanter than the train. So one by one the obstructions and hindrances were removed from their path, and it was decided that the Hollisters were to go to the seashore. At last the day came. Shirley and George went off in the morning, shouting last directions about things. They were always having to go to their work, whatever was happening. It was sometimes hard on them, particularly this day, when everything was so delightfully exciting. The old Graham servant arrived about three o'clock in the afternoon, and proved himself invaluable in doing the little last things without being told. Mrs. Hollister had her first gleam of an idea of what it must be to have plenty of perfectly trained servants about, to anticipate one's needs. He entered the barn as if barns were his native heath, and moved about with the ease and unobtrusiveness that marks a perfect servant, but with none of the hauteur and disdain that many of those individuals entertain toward all whom they consider poor, or beneath them in any way. He had a kindly face, and seemed to understand just exactly what was to be done. Things somehow moved more smoothly after he arrived. At four o'clock came Graham with the car and a load of long linen dust-cloaks and veils. The Hollisters donned them and bestowed themselves where they were told. The servants stowed away the wraps and suitcases. Star mounted the seat beside Harley, and they were ready. They turned to look back at the barn as the car started. The old servant was having a little trouble with the big door, trying to shut it. "'That door is a nuisance,' said Graham as they swept away from the curb. "'It must be fixed. It is no fit door for a barn, anyway.' Then they curved up around Alistair Avenue and left the barn far out of sight. They were going across country to the Graham home to pick up Elizabeth. It was a wonderful experience for them, that beautiful ride in the late afternoon, and when they swept into the great gates and up the broad drive to the Graham mansion and stopped under the porte cochere, Mrs. Hollister was quite overcome with the idea of being beholden to people who lived in such grandeur as this, to think she had actually invited their son to dine in a barn with her. Elizabeth came rushing out eagerly, all ready to start, and climbed in beside Carol. Even George, who was usually silent when she was about, gave her a grin of welcome. The father and mother came out to say good-bye, gave them good wishes, and declared they were perfectly happy to leave their daughter in such good hands. Then the car curved about the great house, among tennis courts, greenhouses, garage, stable, and what not, and back to the pike again, leaping out upon the perfect road, as if it were as excited as the children. Two more stops to pick up George, who was getting off early, and Shirley, who was through at five o'clock, and then they threaded their way out of the city, across the ferry, through another city, and out into the open country, dotted all along the way with clean, pretty little towns. They reached a lovely grove at sundown, and stopped by the way to have supper. Graham got down and made George help him get out the big hamper. There was a most delectable lunch. Sandwiches of delicate and unknown condiments. Salad as bewildering. Soup that had been kept hot in a thermos bottle, served in tiny white cups. Ice tea and ice cream meringues from another thermos compartment, and plenty of delicious little cakes, 
olives, nuts, bonbons, and fruit. It seemed a wonderful supper to them all, eaten out there under the trees, with the birds beginning their vesper songs, and the stars peeping out slyly. Then they packed up their dishes, and hurried on their beautiful way, a silver thread of a moon coming out to make the scene more lovely. Doris was almost asleep when at last they began to hear the booming of the sea and smell the salt breeze as it swept back inland. But she roused up and opened wide, mysterious eyes, peering into the new darkness and murmuring softly, "'I want to see the ocean. I want to see the gaping water!' Stiff, bewildered, filled with ecstasy, they finally unloaded in front of a big white building that looked like a hotel. They tried to see into the deep, mysterious darkness across the road, where boomed a great voice that called them, and where dashing spray loomed high, like a waving phantom hand to beckon them now and again, and far-moving lights told of ships, and a world beyond the one they knew, a wide, limitless thing, like eternity, universe, chaos. With half-reluctant feet, they turned away from the mysterious unseen lure and let themselves be led across an unbelievably wide veranda into the bright light of a hall where everything was clean and shining and a great fireplace filled with friendly flames gave cheer and welcome. The children stood bewildered in the brightness while two strange serving-maids unfastened their wraps and dust-cloaks and helped them take off their hats. Then they all sat around the fire, for Graham had come in by this time, and the maids brought trays of some delicious drink with little cakes and crackers and tinkling ice and straws to drink with. Doris almost fell asleep again, and was carried upstairs by Shirley and put to bed in a pretty white crib she was too sleepy to look at, while Carol, Elizabeth, George, and Harley went with Graham across the road to look at the black, yawning cavern they called Ocean, and to have the shore lighthouses pointed out to them and named one by one. They were all asleep at last, a little before midnight, in spite of the excitement over the spacious rooms and who should have which. Think of it! Thirty rooms in the house, and every one as pretty as every other one. What luxury! And nobody to occupy them but themselves. Carol could hardly get to sleep. She felt as if she had dropped into a novel and was living it. When Graham came out of his room the next morning, the salt breeze swept invitingly through the hall and showed him the big front door of the upper piazza, open and someone standing in the sunlight with light-glowing garments gazing at the sea in rapt enjoyment coming out softly he saw that it was shirley dressed in white with a ribbon of blue at her waist and a soft pink color in her cheeks looking off to sea he stood for a moment to enjoy the picture and said in his heart that sometime if he got his wish he would have her painted so by some great artist with just that little simple white dress and blue ribbon her round white arm lifted her small hand shading her eyes, the sunlight burnishing her brown hair into gold. He could scarcely refrain from going to her and telling her how beautiful she was. But when he stepped quietly up beside her, only his eyes spoke, and brought the color deeper into her cheeks. And so they stood for some minutes, looking together, and drawing in the wonder of God's sea. "'This is the first time I've seen it, you know,' spoke Shirley at last. "'and I'm so glad it was on Sunday morning. "'It will always make the day seem more holy "'and the sea more wonderful to think about. "'I like best things to happen on Sunday, don't you? "'Because that is the best day of all.' "'Graham looked at the sparkling sea, all azure and pearls, "'realized the Sabbath quiet, "'and marveled at the beauty of the soul of the girl, "'even as her feeling about it all seemed to enter into "'and become a part of himself. "'Yes, I do,' said he. I never did before, 
but I do now. And always shall, he added under his breath. That was almost as wonderful a Sabbath as the one they had spent in the woods a couple of weeks before. They walked and talked by the sea, and they went to a little Episcopal chapel, where the windows stood open for the chanting of the waves and the salt of the breeze to come in freely, and then they went out and walked by the sea again. Wherever they went, whether resting in some of the many big rockers on the broad verandas, or walking on the hard smooth sand, or sitting in some cosy nook by the waves, they felt the same deep sympathy, the same conviction that their thoughts were one, the same wonderful thrill of the day and each other's nearness. Somehow, in this new environment, Shirley forgot for a little that this young man was not of her world, that he was probably going back soon to the city to enter into a whirl of the winter season in society, that other girls would claim his smiles and attentions, and she would likely be forgotten. She lost the sense of it entirely, and companioned with him as joyously as if there had never been anything to separate them. Her mother, looking on, sighed, feared, smiled, and sighed again. They walked together in the sweet darkness beside the waves that evening, and he told her how, when he was a little boy, he wanted to climb up to the stars and find God, but later how he thought the stars and God were myths, like Santa Claus, and that the stars were only electric lights put up by men and lighted from a great switch every night, and when they didn't shine, somebody had forgotten to light them. He told her many things about himself that he had never told to anyone before, and she opened her shy heart to him, too. Then they planned what they would do next week when he came back. He told her he must go back to the city in the morning to see his father and mother off and attend to a few matters of business at the office. It might be two or three days before he could return, but after that he was coming down to take a little vacation himself if she didn't mind, and they would do a lot of delightful things together, row, fish, go crabbing, and he would teach her to swim and show her all the walks and favorite places where he used to go as a boy. Reluctantly, they went in, his fingers lingering about hers for just a second at the door, vibrating those mysterious heartstrings of hers again, swiping dearest music from them, and frightening her with joy that took her half the night to put down. End of chapter 20